from Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Start your engines because on this week's PreserveCast, we're talking historic cars and the history of the American automobile with Diane Parker, Vice President of the Historic Vehicle Association. Buckle up and hit the clutch because you're listening to a revved up edition of PreserveCast. Before we start this week's episode, I really want to thank you for listening and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to preservecast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now... Let's get preserving. Diane Parker is vice president of the Historic Vehicle Association. Surrounded by gearheads from a young age, Diane developed a love and appreciation for vehicles. Since joining the Historic Vehicle Association in 2013, she's combined her love of vehicles with her expertise in operations management. Focusing on the organization's overall mission, values, beliefs, and strategic goals, Diane is extremely passionate about the organization's mission to share the cultural past associated with America's automotive heritage. Two major components of that includes Cars the Capital, their annual exhibition on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and continued growth of their program that documents historically significant vehicles in perpetuity. That program is the National Historic Vehicle Register. Similar to the Register of Historic Places and in partnership with the United States Department of the Interior, the Register program ensures that culturally and historically significant automobiles are fully documented and reside within the Library of Congress in perpetuity. Diane, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast to talk about all things historic vehicles. It is my pleasure, Nick. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, um... How does one become the vice president of the Historic Vehicle Association? What was your path to this kind of career? So when I started my career over 30 years ago, I started as an executive assistant. And I started in kind of a government IBM structure. And they felt a little bit confining to me. So in the 90s, I jumped out and I went to uh, biotech and I also went to construction. And that's where I really got my kind of first taste of operations management. I was fortunate to work with some really great leaders who led by example, who believed in me. And one of the gentlemen that I worked with had left. I was seeking another position and I asked him to be a reference and gave him a call. And uh, there was this very pregnant pause on the phone. And I thought, "Uh oh, what in the world could have happened? And he said, listen, you can't take that job. And I said, why? And he said, well, because you have to come and run operations for me at the Historic Vehicle Association. And I thought, wow, um, this is a dream come true. I get to combine my expertise in operations management and my passion and love for everything cars. And uh, that was in 2013. And uh, pedal to the metal, I've never looked back. So how long has the Historic Vehicle Association existed? It has been around for 10 years this year, as a matter of fact. Okay. And so you were there 
close to the, close to the beginning, I suppose. You you came in, in in thirteen, and it sounds like it started around oh eight oh nine. Um, what was the what was the impetus for this? What what kind of got this organization rolling? Because it, it's and how many puns can we use relating to cars? We're gonna see. We're gonna <laughs> we'll do a count at the end. You said revved up okay, or, something, or pedal to the metal. Um, right. but, but, but seriously, how, how, um, it seems like there's a lot of historical vehicle groups out there and everything like that, but, um, you definitely have cornered the market. It sort of seems on sort of the professionalism and really the preservation side of it. What got it started? Who was, who was really the, the, the folks behind this? The, you know, the, the main person behind it was McKeel Haggerty, uh, of the Haggerty Corporation, which is a, um, a lifestyle brand, but others may know it as uh, one of the largest classic car insurers in the United States. Um, and originally, when the organization started, it had more of um, a legislative type of mission to it, um, looking across the United States to different legislations and things of that nature. And it progressed into and morphed into um, a more sustainable business model associated with as we looked into our preservation and, and history, there wasn't one vehicle that had been documented as part of our cultural heritage, which a lot of people were surprised uh, to, to find that out. And so Keel has been um, one of the driving forces behind the organization. Um, that is our parent company, and that's where we get a mass of a majority of our funding from. Um, so that's really how it uh, how it started and kind of what it morphed into. And so, um, what is it that you do um, at the Historic Vehicle Association? What does it mean to be the vice president of this organization? Well, I tell you, it's a you know it's a team effort. We're a team of five people. Uh, we are lean, but we are strong. So first of all, everyone's on the same page. We're really, really passionate that America's automotive heritage should never be lost or forgotten. And so the program that you talked about there as part of my bio is the National Historic Vehicle Register. And so what we do is we have a public-private partnership with the Department of Interior, the Historic American Engineering Record, and the Library of Congress to ensure that hundreds of years from now, when none of us are, are no longer here, that we tell these uniquely American stories associated with some very diverse vehicles um, and that that information is located in the Library of Congress so that um, the stories will continue and that we'll never lose them. So you're really involved. Uh, I mean, the organization, it sounds like, for someone on the outside who doesn't know a lot about historic vehicles, um, you're really in the nitty-gritty of making sure vehicles are documented. When you say documented, um, and I mean, some people listening may be familiar with the Historic American Engineering Record um, or the building version, the Historic the HABS program. Right. Um, or even HAL. Right. Or the landscape landmark. program. Right. So, but what mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. Um, what are they actually doing when they're documenting a car? What is it? What, what's the end product look like? So, first of all, there's a criteria and we use the same criteria that they do for the built world. So, it's four different criteria. A vehicle only needs to meet one, so it would be association with an important person, association with an important event in American history. It would be design or construction value, or it would be information value, meaning is it the first or is it the last, or maybe it's the uh, only remaining example of that particular make. 
The documentation itself is made up of uh, three components. It is professional studio photography that we conduct in our uh, photographic cyclorama, and basically that just means uh, it is a, a photographic studio with curved walls so that every car is photographed in the exact same manner. Um, we do an extensive written history of each of the vehicles, and then there are measured line drawings. We work directly with the Department of Interior to do scans of the vehicles um, so that we end up with 2D drawings that go into the Library of Congress along with the photography and all the written histories. So it's pretty detailed, and I'm curious how many vehicles have been documented to date. Do you have any sense for that? I absolutely, if I didn't, I better not be the vice president of this organization. <laughs> <laughs> we currently have 26 vehicles on the National Historic Vehicle Register. And interestingly enough, um, the register for documenting vehicles as part of our cultural heritage just came about. We announced the first vehicle in 2014. So it hasn't been in place a very long time, but you've already done 26. And the goal is, I mean, as many as you possibly can. I mean, I imagine that there must be, I mean, 26 seems like a really small number considering the the role automobiles have played in American history. So you have your work cut out for you. We do. Well, especially if you consider a couple of things. First of all, there's about 2,500 makes of automobiles. So if we were to do one of each make, there's 2,500 right there. But if we look at the Register of Historic Places, um, right now, there's about 130,000 buildings, bridges, landscapes, ships, airplanes, structures, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Statue of Liberty, that are documented as part of our cultural heritage. So we have a little bit of catching up to do, I would say. <laughs> and what, what do you have any sense for why, when the register was created, they didn't initially take on cars? Is there any history to that, or is that we just don't know? Do you, do you have any sense? There just doesn't appear to be any um, any documentation as to why or why not, for instance. I mean, the Preservation Act of 1966 included buildings, bridges, structures, and other structures and objects. Certainly, the vehicle would uh, fall within that realm, but it was just something um, that was never covered. And so, from our perspective, you know, this is a gap uh, in our cultural heritage that needs that needs to be filled. So let's talk about this cultural heritage. Let's talk about the impact of vehicles in American history. I mean, I imagine some people listening to this are listening to it in their vehicle. Um, so, uh, and and you 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 basically would have to live in some type of cave um, to to not have a sense for the the outsized role that vehicles um, play in our everyday lives and and have played for the past you know hundred years or so. But. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, someone who lives this, breathes this, um, is documenting these things and really understands and appreciates the, the, the role vehicles have played in American history, what's the, if you had to pick one, what's the biggest impact vehicles have had in American history? What, what, would, you, what would you say? I'm curious. So I would say that, you know, as we look back at the turn of the 19th century, um, when the invention of the vehicle came about, it was really the possibility to move well beyond the urban centers uh, that people lived in and travel, travel much greater distances than they ever could have imagined, which would have taken weeks or even months, um, that suddenly they could experience and get to um, in a vehicle. 
Yeah, I mean, it really just kind of like changes the way we perceive our country. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is an undeniable technological and engineering legacy uh, there uh, coupled with, you know, our, our cultural impact. So on the flip side of that, um, not everything about cars is great, right? Um, there's there's some troubled legacy. I mean, you know, from, from the other side of the preservation coin, the highways that followed cars tore apart our cities. Um, you know, a lot of people point to vehicle missions as a big component of, you know, drivers of climate change. And, you know, people get angry about cities that are designed for cars. Um, how do you guys deal with that? Or are you just solely focused on documentation and that kind of keeps you from having to enter that fray? Where, where do you come down on those sorts of issues? Because I feel like we're at a moment where um, the car is, is something that people love to love to complain about, even though it seems like everybody still has to use it. <laughs> right. I'm actually really glad you brought this up. This is um, just, I think it's such an interesting topic of discussion. Um, you know, if we go back and we look at transportation um, the way it used to be, horses were a means of transportation before vehicles came along. Um, and there are scientific periodicals that refer to horses actually as a terrible tax upon human life. And that was because of the irritation to respiratory organs caused by windblown manure particles. Um, not to mention that um, flies were carrying somewhere around 30 different types of diseases. Um, and so, you know, as we think about transportation and how we've moved about this country, um, we have, again, this technological and engineering legacy that, you know, we would move from the horse, you know, who were was causing issues for humans, and we would go to horseless carriage or electric streetcars. We had, uh, you know, electricity or cold fire, steam engines, internal combustion engines then came along. But, you know, I think overall our history has shown us that as a society, um, we continue to evolve in order to address those things that are taxing upon human life, but also our planet. So it goes so well far beyond the automobile. It goes back much, much farther than that. Right. And I mean, I guess to, to your point about like, we're always trying to innovate beyond what taxes us, you know, the next step for the automobile, right, is the self-driving one. Like, I, I don't want to have to drive myself. That's taxing. And <laughs> so, right. So I, I'm just going to yeah. sit in it now. Well, and then th this is kind of the next steps in our evolution that the electric cars are coming up and then, you know, driverless vehicles are coming about as well. So, you know, we continue to to innovate and, uh, and, and address the, the issues. So what important automotive history are you concerned about losing? Um, you know, you've, you've documented uh, a couple dozen vehicles. So you've got, all, as you, you mentioned and pointed out, there's a lot left to do. But are there certain types of vehicles or certain aspects of automotive history that really worry um, the association or, and our, our priorities to document because you're, you're concerned we're, we're going to lose it? You know, the biggest concern, Nick, is um, some of the the older people uh, that know, for instance, like brass era cars, uh, are leaving us. So, what's a brass era car? I don't, I don't even know. What does that, what does that mean? So, a brass era car is a very, very early car that may have wood wheels, but they may have 
brass lanterns on the outside and and headlights. They were really very ornamental. Uh, and that that type of vehicle, they're the people that deal with them, that have worked on them, that have the history of them, you know, we're losing them. And so it almost feels like we are losing people faster than we can get to them so that we can't document the history. But, you know, that goes beyond the vehicle as well to historic places and buildings and landscapes and things of that nature. You want to be able to get to the people and speak with them that actually know of the history. So do you have an oral history component or a, a hope to do some of that work? Um, we share, we have our, oral, the oral histories are, oftentimes we do capture um, the people on recording, which can be found on our website. We've done um, some anywhere between 8 and 20 minute type of small documentaries so that you actually see the people that are involved. So, um, yes. And that is not required as part of the documentation process to go into the right. Library of Congress. It's like an add-on, um, though. But that is an add-on. That is yeah. an add-on, yes. So, and we're, we're fortunate that we have uh, partners that support us in our mission. And we talked about Haggerty and McKeel and how he has been uh, supportive. But, you know, recently we ha- just had a legislation reintroduced, as a matter of fact, from Senator Gary Peters from Michigan. It was co-sponsored by Senator Rob Portman for the National Historic Vehicle Register Act. Uh, and basically that is a bill that is uh, put upon the floor now. It would establish the register um, in a very formal way, uh, the exact same way that the Register of Historic Places. Um, right now it's a public par- partnership. It will remain that way no matter what. We don't, will not and do not ask for federal funding. There aren't any tax breaks that go with having your vehicle on the register. Um, And importantly, we don't want to tell people what they can and cannot do um, with their cars. Right. Although it's, I think cars are a little different than buildings. I feel like if you have a classic car, odds are you aren't going to pop out the windows and put vinyl ones in. (laughs) Um, It's like, (laughs) I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can screw up a classic car, but um, you know, it it seems like uh, buildings for one reason or another are fraught with more challenges. People seem to to take care of their babies as they call them, right? They, they do. uh, You know, the major difference is uh, buildings don't move, cars do. And so tracking the history and how many times they changed hands and would have, what could have potentially been done so that we ensure that we uh, record it as accurately as we possibly can, can get a, um, a little bit fuzzy sometimes. So it sounds like what's next for you, I was going to ask what's next, but it sounds like you've got legislation to really kind of make this into an even bigger thing and documenting more. Um, any other exciting things that you want to tell listeners about or, or where they can find out more information about the association? I would love that. Uh, People can go to our website, uh, historicvehicle.org, to discover uh, what we're up to and cars that are on the register. You can uh, take a deep dive into the histories and uh, the criteria, the reason why they're on the register. Uh, We have upcoming, we have two major events during the year. You mentioned cars at the Capitol. Um, That just occurred in September. And that is where we display vehicles in a glass display case right on the hardscape of the National Mall between the Air and Space Museum and the National Gallery of Art. We display one car at a time for one week at a time. So uh, 
And we also have a drive history, what we call a drive history conference that we have coming up in April of 2020. And, and where is that? People, that is at our um, national lab in Allentown, Pennsylvania. It is a beautiful 30-acre campus that we share with the NB Center for American Automotive Heritage. And uh, that, too, is listed on our website for people that may be interested in registering or maybe even putting in a, uh, a proposal to, to speak and to, to present some information. Very cool. So for people listening who want to learn more about the American car and the history of us, is there any great history or is there a book that you particularly like or anything you'd recommend, a documentary or something that you're really fond of um, that you feel like tells the story well? So one of my favorite books is Arsenal of Democracy by A.J. Bain, and it is really a very well-written um, kind of history of Henry Ford and his son Ethel Ford and kind of their relationship um, and how they developed the company. Um, okay. One of my favorite kind of documentaries uh, that includes cars but also other things is um, The Men Who Built America. Um, it's got Henry Ford in it, but also Thomas Edison, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and it kind of showcases the the technological advancements that help formulate the concept of you know the American dream, as it were. Right, and 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 isn't the car central to that dream? Pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. Um. So okay, two two fun questions. Um. Before we get to the hard question, um. But. Favorite car movie, and do you have a favorite car song? We've never had been able to ask this question before, but but you know who else could you ask these questions to? But the vice president of the Historic Vehicle Association. <laughs> um, awesome. So favorite car movie, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And oh yes, yes. Not to mention that car is actually on the National Historic Vehicle Register. It's number twenty. Is it really because yes. of its association with the movie? It, well, famous person event, which was the right. movie. It it has uh, design and construction value because it's really not. It's uh, badged a Ferrari, but it is not truly a Ferrari. It is not. It is its own. Um, it has a different um, suspension, a different front end, a different rear end. So it is not. It is created all and of itself. Um, and that is well, the, the actual if, if that's not enough reason to look it up for someone listening to this, I don't know what would be. I mean, you're pulling together pop culture, you know, uh, actors, history, Ferraris. I mean, what else yeah, do you it's have? Great. It's great. <laughs> it's the actual car that Matthew Broderick drove. And uh, if you go take a look at our website, you'll see the pictures of all the um, detail shots of the car. And you'll notice that the car looks like it's a stick. But it's actually an automatic because Matthew Broderick could not drive a manual. <laughs> what a great, what a great piece of trivia. That's okay, a, I love yeah, that. there's a little fun, there's a little fun fact for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, favorite car song. Okay, I have two. It was really, okay. really. It's very hard for me to decide. So first, it would be Low Rider, which we also have a Low Rider on the uh, on the register, and Perfect. Cadillac Ranch by Bruce Springsteen. And uh, of course, we have a Cadillac. We have a Cadillac on the register. Now, I didn't purposely tie it to what's on the register. But... No, but it just beautifully worked that way. And I, yeah, I, I, don't, I didn't, I, we didn't talk, we talked a little bit for the listener, a little in, in advance about some of the questions we were going to talk about. And I didn't throw this one out there, but do you own a historic vehicle of your own? I do not. I do share. My brother has a, uh, uh, 1970 Dodge Dart Swinger in Plum Crazy Purple. 
that I'm fortunate enough that uh, it's at my house, or at least it was until yesterday when the ASDA Museum picked it up uh, and took it for, they are having a Age of Aquarius exhibit and asked if uh, they could have my brother's car to exhibit. So it's pretty awesome that as a family, um, you get to experience this. But, you know, this has been a lifelong love and passion. And uh, my brother, both my brothers are the reason why I'm a car girl. I grew up around this stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, my, my bucket list is to purchase a uh, Willis Jeep from World War II and restore it on my own. So someday, when I have the space for that, that's my own historic vehicle dream. And I think we all okay. have those, right? <laughs> all right, fantastic. Then what you need to do is go look at the number eight car, the Ford Pilot, uh, called a Jeep Pygmy. That's also on our register. So it'll give you, it'll, cool. you get bitten. You get bitten by the bug even more. <laughs> um, and before we go, the hardest question we ask anyone who loves history and historic places and all these sorts of things, your favorite historic site or place? You know, for me, it's hard to choose. It's definitely hard to choose. Um, but I would have to say the Lincoln Memorial, uh, as you on the step and you, look at his stature and you just kind of remember everything that he, uh, what he stood for. I mean, he was the martyr hero, um, that maneuvered to, to end slavery. And then 98 years later, Martin Luther King was standing on those steps, uh, looking over the reflecting pool of 250,000 people to give his, I have a dream speech. So it's always a very reflective place for me. Um, and, and, uh, kind of a, a remembrance. Well, a, a perfect answer um, to the end of a perfect interview. This was a lot of fun. So interesting to hear about the good work that you're doing. Um, and people definitely should look you up, find out about your conference if they're in the D.C. area, head down to the mall and, and see when you have the cars down there. Um, a lot of good work happening there. And just a pleasure to have you with us here today. Thanks so much for joining us, Diane. A pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving. One hundred years ago, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the Women's Suffrage Movement that has had a lasting legacy on equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Galgler Avilius Jones Law Firm, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more or to donate to support these efforts, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about the fearless leader of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association, Emma Maddox-Funk, 
read by Casey Roan, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy. Emma Maddox-Funk, leader of the Maryland Woman Suffrage Association. After decades of an anti-suffrage political climate in the years following the Civil War, the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association emerged as the state's first successful statewide suffrage group. In 1889, Caroline Hallowell Miller gathered a small group of her friends and neighbors in Sandy Spring as the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association. When the Baltimore City Suffrage Club formed in 1894, both groups reorganized under the umbrella of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association a statewide movement had begun. The Maryland Women's Suffrage Association moved forward cautiously. Wary of provoking opposition, they focused on organizing their members and educating the public. They considered, but ultimately decided against a letter writing or a petitioning campaign and rejected encouragement from national leaders to contest their legal right to vote in court. In 1904, the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association elected a new president, Emma Maddox Funk, who had led the Baltimore City Suffrage Club since 1898. Funk was a Baltimore native and a graduate of Eastern High School, and she had earned a reputation as a talented musician and singer. She described herself as a lifelong supporter of equal rights, who had been transformed into a suffrage activist during two years spent in homebound convalescence. She passed the time by reading suffrage literature, and when she emerged, she immediately sought out other Baltimore women engaged in the movement. One of her major achievements as Maryland Woman Suffrage Association president was successfully lobbying the National American Woman Suffrage Association, known as NASA, to bring their 1906 annual national convention to Maryland. The Lyric Theater in Baltimore hosted the convention from February 7th to 13th in 1906. The gathering convened thousands of suffragists from across the country for a program of speeches, prayer services, musical performances, and club meetings. Attendees witnessed an important milestone, the transition in leadership from the movement's founders to the next generation. Susan B. Anthony, who was elderly and in poor health at the convention, used her remarks to urge the assembled young women to carry on the movement. She passed away just a month later. Her oration at the Lyric was one of the last times that she spoke in public. The Baltimore Convention was a pivotal moment that spurred new leaders and new groups to emerge. Not all of these new leaders agreed with the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association's conservative approach, but Funk continued to pursue patient persuasion and attempts to bring statewide suffrage legislation before the Maryland General Assembly. After the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, Emma Maddox Funk continued her political engagement and advocated for women's rights and made two unsuccessful attempts to run for office. Funk's legacy lies in her stewardship of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association through the critical years of the early 20th century, which brought thousands of Maryland women into political and civic life for the first time.